Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a man in his apartment talking into a microphone all by himself. This is not quite as lame as ham radio. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining me. My name is Brad Listy. Uh, I am in Los Angeles, California, where it is currently beautiful. It is sunny. It is 75 degrees or thereabouts. And just a few miles away, out there to the west is the Pacific Ocean, the the big blue ocean, and it is just sitting there. So I've been getting a lot of feedback on the podcast. I've been getting emails and messages of various sorts. So let me share some of the feedback. Uh, this first letter is an email in reference to, I believe, episode 144, the previous episode with Andrea Siegel. And the letter was written by a listener named Aaron, who says, Dear Brad, I'm a longtime listener, and I wanted to say that your mini rant about the weighing in on the cultural moment obsession, and especially the self-serving exploitative aspects of it, had a loud and clear ring of truth to me. So far, I've never seen or heard of anybody with any major stakes in the internet writing game speak out against the way. Everybody seems to latch on to the next big topic with total abandon, chasing the vague possibility that they'll somehow get personal recognition for it. 
This kind of literary ambulance chasing has seemed to go completely unremarked upon and accepted for so long. I let out a literal sigh of relief when you covered it. So thank you for giving an audible and insider's voice to, uh, to a problem that I, for one, think has been ignored for too long. Cheers, Aaron. So thank you, Aaron. Uh, and literary ambulance chasing. I think that needs to be an actual term. That needs to be official. The next time you see a writer whorishly writing an essay about something that just so happens, just so happens to be getting a lot of media attention concurrently, uh, you know, the, the writer is doing so in a naked attempt to somehow capitalize on that media attention and funnel set attention in his or her direction. That is called literary ambulance chasing now and forevermore. I like that. So another message I got from a listener uh, goes as follows. This listener calls himself or herself bishops, bishops, some sort of internet code name. I never understand that. So here's what bishops has to say. Dear Brad, stop saying writer's success is because of dumb luck. It comes off ugly, like envious on your part. The reason they do well is because they are good at what they do and are ambitious. Signed, bishops. So, uh, see, this gets complicated, I think. I've actually spent some time thinking about this, the question of luck or dumb luck or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the question is, what role does luck play in a person's happiness or success? And I, I guess I tend to believe that it plays a role, a significant role. Like, I think if someone is successful, uh, a big part of it, and possibly even a majority part of it, has to do with luck. That's my suspicion anyway, based on experience, based on what I see. And then, you know, uh, you know you'll have people who say, well, it's about hard work and persistence and intelligence and talent and grit and, you know, all that stuff. And you know what? Pretty much everybody I know works hard. And certainly most of the writers I know work hard. And uh, most of the writers I talk to on this show work hard. And they persist and they are talented and they are intelligent. And uh, you know what? The overwhelming majority of them are struggling. They're either poor and some of them are desperately poor uh, despite all of this hard work and talent and intelligence and persistence. Uh, or they're financed by a significant other or by family money or something along those lines. They're not selling books. And, uh, you know, and, th and that's not the only measure of success, too. You know, to get, that, that's why it gets complicated. I see the, the point is that I see no rhyme or reason to why some things launch and some careers take off and others don't. At some point, it just becomes about luck. I don't know what else to call it. You know, yeah, some books take off. Some authors take off. And they deserve it. They're, these are good books written by good authors, and I'm happy about that. Like, trust me when I say I'm happy about that. But the overwhelming majority of good books written by good authors do not take off. They sell 500 copies if they're lucky. They get a $5,000 advance if they're lucky. And why? Because they're not good enough? Because these books don't inherently have what it takes or these writers don't inherently have what it takes? I doubt that. I know these people. <laughs> I've read these books. Like, I think it's ultimately, you know, it's usually or ultimately some kind of weird cosmic thing when a book launches, when a career takes off. I don't know what it is. 
I don't think anybody does. Is it timing? Is it the zeitgeist? You know, and and then I say that, and then I'll read a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, as, you know, who's a guy I revere. I love Emerson. It's like a North Star kind of writer. And he has this famous line where he says something to the effect of, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, I think. He says, small men believe in luck. Big men believe in cause and effect. So I've thought about that a lot. And it's like, who am I to refute Ralph Waldo Emerson? Uh, does this mean that my belief in luck makes me a small man? Am I a small man? <laughs> am I a small-minded, pathetic, groveling man? And, you know, I don't think so. And here's why. Like, if I read that quote more closely, small men believe in luck, big men believe in cause and effect. I don't think that Emerson was necessarily denying the role of luck or its basic existence. I think what he's saying is that it's just a better operating policy to believe that it's cause and effect. It's better to behave as though it all comes down to you and what you do and the effort that you make rather than acting like you have no control or that luck plays a prominent or even a dominant role because that would uh, probably lead to paralysis or like deep (laughs) crushing depression. It's about control. Like how much control do we really have over our destinies? Personally, I don't think we have majority control. But I also think that we should pretend like we do. Taking Emerson's advice. That's where I'm at with it currently, personally, right now. And maybe it'll change. I don't know. I think you should work like it's all cause and effect, understanding that dumb luck plays a big role. And so what I notice is that I tend to be deeply turned off. Here's something I know. I know that I tend to be deeply turned off when I hear uh, some really successful or really powerful or really rich, whatever, uh, person who stands there proudly thumping their chest and says something to the effect of, there's no such thing as luck. That is such horseshit. That bugs me. (laughs) Because you know what the subtext to that is? The the subtext is, I did it all myself. It was all me. You see all of this. You see this success. You see this mountain of money. You see this airplane. You see this house. It was because of my brilliance and my talent and my hard work. It's because of everything I did and I deserve it because it's all because of me. I hate that. (laughs) Have some humility. That's what I'm saying. Yes, you worked hard. Yes, you persisted. Yes, you made good decisions. Yes, you're talented and beautiful and perfect. But you're also fucking lucky. You've been in the right place at the right time. You were born to the right parents in the right town and went to the right schools. And your spouse is the right spouse who put you through graduate school. Whatever it is. Does that make sense? That's where my head is at on that. So last letter, and then we'll get on with it. Uh, This one comes from a listener named Julia, who briefly says, Dear Brad... Jesus Christ, your monologue uh, on the desire to stare at beautiful people gave me chills. Preach on. I am at a coffee shop. This woman is asking for her, quote, sport vest. Sincerely, Julia. Sport vest? I'm not even sure what that means, but I like it. And I think that the episode in question is uh, number 140, the beautiful people monologue. I don't know if you guys heard that, but... Um, I really do think that's bullshit. Not being, you know, not being allowed by 
uh, the dictates of social norms or whatever, not being allowed to stare at good looking people for an extended period. That should be a fundamental right. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, if you're gorgeous and you're 25 years old and you're wearing leather pants or a sport vest or what have you, then the rest of us should be able to stare at you for an extended period of time without having to feel creepy about it. That's all that I'm saying. And I encourage everyone out there who's listening to stare at people more often and without shame. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my first guest is David Shields, who uh, has actually been on this program before uh, early on. He is the author of several books, including the much-talked-about Reality Hunger of just a couple of years back, and he has a new one coming out. He actually has two new books coming out, the first of which publishes on February 8th, 2013, in just a couple of days, and in fact, it might already be at your local bookstore, for all I know. It is called How Literature Saved My Life, and it is available from Knopf, and then later this year, in September, David's going to be publishing an oral biography of J.D. Salinger. There's a lot of buzz around this one. Uh, it's called The Private War of J.D. Salinger. It is co-authored by Shane Salerno, a filmmaker uh, who has made a companion documentary about J.D. Salinger. And this film was just purchased by the PBS series American Masters. And uh, that's going to be airing on PBS as the 200th episode of American Masters, I believe, later this year. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on for David. I'm very pleased to have him here once again. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Shields. I'm in Seattle, and I'm in my basement office, and I'm in my bathroom. <laughs> very, just, it's very Hugh Hefner. It's very Hugh Hefner. Now. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, is this where you do your work? I mean, is this your dojo? It is. Yeah, I have a little, I have a, a nice little office. I mean, you know, like 16 by 20 in my basement. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much where I work at my desk and at uh, my chair and uh, a little, a little day bed where I, I collapse. Oh, so you can actually like nap in between like writing. Alas, yeah. So you know, every time that my wife comes down, she goes, "You know, I thought you you were working." I'm like half asleep. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a really nice office. Yeah, it's great. I have... mean, it's not not fancy or anything. It's just an office with you know 
papers strewn everywhere. But it's a real, it's a nice, I've always have seemed to want, you know, uh, definitely a, you know, a room of my own, as they say. Well, are you getting, uh, are you getting any daylight or is it like a windowless basement situation? No, it's definitely, I prefer, I mean, there is a window, but I actually block it out. I mean, it's kind of weird. I'm kind of vampiric. I definitely like, um, you know, I just want to be inside of my own space. Both I can, mental and physical. I, I can relate to that. Like I, I like like a very I could work in like a blank white room with no windows yeah. and be perfectly happy. <laughs> and one thing I don't get is some people who put a lot of um award, you know, they won this award and that award and they put it all around their office. I just couldn't imagine doing <laughs> that. I mean I just had it's really um very, very plain. Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't want distraction. Mean, I'm so easily distracted anyway. Like the last thing I need mm-hmm. is, you know, some sort of like, right. you know, a I mean, plaque. Where or, are you, Brad? You're in, in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I'm, or in Los, nearby. I'm in Los Angeles, like right in like Hollywood, West Hollywood. Right. And, the, you know, there's a lot of light coming in. And it's like, I, I don't know, the times I've been in L.A., uh, you know, it's just, boy, the, the light is strong. And so... It's, you know, boy, I don't want all that light coming in. That would just, that's to me quite contrary to writing for me. I, I, I lived in the Pacific Palisades once a long, long time ago where my girlfriend and I got to house it for her father. It was a film producer who had really beautiful house in the Pacific Palisades. And we had just this incredible, incredible glass view of the ocean and I had to go through the whole house so I could find the one dark space. <laughs> you know, I basically ended up riding in the garage and this tiny The house was just full of just breathtaking views. <laughs> and I, you know, I had to find the, um, the black space to ride in. It was sort of well, very You mentioned that about Los Angeles. It sort of is a bummer because, like, right now, for instance, it's sunny in, like, 75 which is like how is it really? Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, like absolutely I'm gorgeous. Nine. And so you're sitting inside, and when you have like a visual access to that sort of good weather and beauty, it's it's it can draw you out. You know, sometimes I don't want right. to. I don't want to be reminded. It's kind of nice in Los I Angeles. I know. When it rains. I know. It's that LA thing where you know people, the movie industry moved to LA because of the sunlight. You know, the the light you could shoot film and. Uh, yeah, it's it's the defining characteristic of L.A., obviously, yeah. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the new book, uh, How Literature Saved sure. My Life. Um, first of all, like how, how, like, how do you describe it? Like, I find that, you know, with anybody who writes uh, books, it's always a pain in the ass to get asked that question, like, what's your book about? But I, think- I know, but it's a good question. It's It's a good question, and it is one that I have trouble answering on this one. I think this is among the very first interviews I've done on this book. Perhaps it's the very first, but I mean, I've done sort of a many ones where I, but this, you know, like I think, Oh my God, I've got to figure out what the book is about. I'm talking to Brad about it. And, um, um, I kind of want to ask, ask you what, what the book's about, but I'll try to explain what the book's about. Um, which is that, um, I don't know. I was talking to my friend, Jonathan Rabin, I don't know if you know Jonathan's work. He's a, a British writer sure. who lives in Seattle. Jonathan's uh, daughter is good friends with my daughter. And he said, he said, and I think this is right. I mean, I think for a while, I mean, he said it, he says it's impossible to think about the book without thinking of it as the sort of surprising sequel to reality hunger. 
And I think that's not a bad place to start. I mean, I think it's its own book for sure. But to me, I think of it as an attempt to, you know, the basically reality hunger kind of burn literature down to the ground for me. And I and this book to me is an attempt to build literature back up for myself that, you know, in a way you could say in a different metaphor that reality hunger kind of opened up a lot of spaces and this is an attempt to fill that space. And then I think also I think of the book as, you know, an attempt to, you know, that if reality hunger was an attempt to theorize about literature, this is an attempt to practice it, to, you know, to show sort of what it is I'm, I'm, tr- I'm about and to actually to illustrate the process of how, you know, to kind of give an example, I mean, not to say that, that what I've written is literature, that's for someone else to, to decide, but that, you know, this is sort of the more vulnerable, the more visceral, the more vivid demonstration of what I was talking about, I hope, in Reality Hunger. I mean, for me, just this is all probably rather abstract. For me, it's a, the book is meant to chart my journey to find a literature that I can live with. I feel like those are, how are those is my description. I think those are perfect. I was, I was going to say that first one where you said Reality Hunger sort of burns literature to the ground and then... Um, this book kind of builds it back up and fills in the spaces that you you sort of carved out with the, with reality hunger. That that makes right. a lot, that makes a lot of sense to me. Thanks, thanks. And so here's a natural question because I know we spoke, uh, I believe it was last year, you know, for an episode of this show, and right. we, we talked. And I, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of reality hunger, and we talked about the, that that book and how. Uh, you know how it was written and how it was an outgrowth of your work as a teacher and how the right. the content of reality hunger had essentially been stewing uh, inside of you for a long time. You'd been teaching it. A very long time. Yeah. I would say sort of sort of 15 or 20 years maybe. Okay. So when it comes to the kind of like literature that, that you – or the kind of books that you write, uh, the, the collage, you know, literary collage, the particleized or atomized or whatever approach to literature. That's a good word, yeah. When you talk about reality hunger uh, being an outgrowth of course um, preparatory work that you were doing as a teacher – that that book and it's in you know the way that it reads makes a lot of sense. So my net, my net natural next question is was is how literature saved my life? Uh, was it birthed in a similar way or differently? You know, well, it's a great question. I think it was um, a lot of the ways that 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 this book was birthed. To use your word, was I mean this is not by any means <clears throat> the main birthing process of how literature saved my life, but it's it's one of them that, you know, in the aftermath of Reality Hunger, you know, I was asked to, to do a lot of writing, and I was asked to do a lot of interviews, and, a, and, and one thing I did is that I got every single interview that, that I did, and I got the, the transcripts, or I actually transcribed them, you know, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of pages, and I kind of looked for stuff I said that was sort of interesting or to me interesting, you know, a riff on Maggie Nelson or a riff on Sarah Manguso or something about Amy Fusselman or Simon Gray or Ben Lerner or whatever. That in a way, you know, kind of like after I wrote Black Planet, 
I was asked to to be kind of the big think guy for a while about sports and race. And so I wrote a lot of pieces about that. And so for a while on Reality Hunger, I was the sort of moving target when people wanted to think about collage and appropriation and copyright and stuff like that. So I don't think I don't think there was like any, I mean, but I think that I'd have to go through the book chapter by chapter. There must be, I don't know, sort of 50 or 60 or 70 sections of it when, you know, sort of eight chapters and each chapter has maybe uh, half a dozen or more mini sections. So sort of 60 or 70 subsections and, you know, several of the sections, I don't know how many, you know, come from, you know, a little paragraph I said in an interview, which I then completely rewrote or, or maybe a short essay I wrote that I then remix. So, there was a, l- a little bit of a reality hunger aftermath there too. I mean, I'd have to—I've got the galley in front of me, and uh, you know, it's—I'd I'd have to go through it. But I think that when I think of the birthing process, I was trying to either an interview or an essay I wrote, or me just trying to explain to myself, you know, basically what I was trying to talk about in reality hunger. Because I think, to a certain degree, reality hunger was understood to be the sort of negative book that was somehow against something, like supposedly against the novel or against um, copyright. But but really that book was meant to be a full-out celebration of a new way of writing. And I feel like I just, I wanted to make that emphatically clear in this book in how literature, because it's, I think how literature kind of explains, I mean, not explains, but sort of does the celebration more fully, I think. So, again, the birthing for me is both me thinking to myself, me writing for at request, and me being interviewed by request to basically, you know, explain myself, young man, and this was, and how literature, in a way, is my attempt to, in a way, oddly kind of revisit reality hunger in a strange way. Okay, so when, if somebody who's got aspirations to write in a similar vein and to, to make the kind of books that you celebrate in reality hunger and in how literature, like I'm just trying to dig inside of process a little bit more because sure, no process, process always interests me. Yeah. Well, and especially with your work and especially with work of this nature, because, you know, I, right. think, I think people can sit down to write a novel and they can either do the outline and they can work in this really structured type A kind of way, or they can, work intuitively where they figure it out day by day and, you know, backslide and then climb back up the hill. And, you know, those are pretty much the two main ways when you sat when you sat down to write this or when you sit down to write or collage anything, are you essentially working? And and this is what I'm guessing happens. And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Are you essentially working intuitively where you sit down at your desk, knowing that you're writing, knowing that you're working on some kind of book but the book doesn't really tell you what it is until way deep into the process? Or do you have like a, a really clear preconception of it? Yeah, I mean, you definitely have guessed, not guessed, but from your own working method that you know the former is closer right. to it. You know, that basically I had this idea that the book was something to do with the relationship of art and life. I somehow knew that. And then at that point... I was just endlessly doing what I call shooting a lot of film. I mean, there's just hundreds of passages that I cut out of the book, um, you know, and it basically I was just endlessly shooting film, just passages, you know, a riff on, you know, Delilah or Fred Moody or, 
uh, you know, Prometheus or Spider-Man. It, it all, I just sort of knew it was about this, to me, bottomless topic of the dialectic between life and art. I sort of knew that. And then I just sort of wrote, I did, I just sort of developed this huge cutting field, just endless amounts of material that are broadly on a topic, whether in previous books like Remote about mass media or Black Planet on race or, or Thing About Life on mortality or Reality Hunger about, um, to me, that book is about genre a lot. That, um, you know, I just sort of, I, I, I don't, I just am trying to build passages that I semi-like. Just, I try to get, you know, a couple hundred passages that I can live with. And then I do the huge reordering of it, you know, the reorganization of it into, I mean, that's, you know, that's a huge part of, of what I hope is the art of it, is trying to get the passages in an order that has some genuine momentum, because, of course, the book lacks at least an overt narrative arc, but it, I, I want it to have an undeniable thematic arc. Well, that's the and thing. That's the trick. I mean, because I've made one of these... Everything, coll- isn't uh, it? Yeah. I mean, I've made one of these collage books, and it's like... Sure. It can it can seem from the outside looking in like oh you know you just you you take all the disparate pieces each I of what, hate you, when people say that yeah but it's not it doesn't work that way because you can no. have you can have two hundred great micro essays that could stand alone individually and work but then actually um, ordering it and stitching it into a cohesive whole that really reads is a totally different game <laughs> oh yeah I mean that's everything to me I mean I thought that's what. I like your book for a variety of, of reasons, but I thought your stitching was exquisite. I mean, you did a beautiful job of that, of making it have some real thematic power. I mean, that's the thing I always say, you know, collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled. You know, it's not this sort of kitchen sink thing, which you just throw in a bunch of stuff, and you hope some people, like some of them, I mean, I really hate when people say that about books of mine, even books of mine that they like, they go, oh, yeah, it was just a wonderful miscellany of riffs. It's like, no, it wasn't. (laughs) You have no idea what, I mean, you can like or dislike the book, but I said, oh, yeah, I just sort of jumped around your book. It was some some funny parts. (laughs) They were like, really? (laughs) Are you sure you read it? I was going to say, do you know how how many hours I bled to make that thing hold together? I know. I mean, I think so hard about that. And, you know, that that's just, I mean, in a way, like I think I said, you know, it's like the book is this journey to find a literature I can live with. And like so many of the books I love, I mean, I almost literally have trouble reading a book that is not collagistic at this point. I mean, there's something deep in my brain that is just wired into collage. And the moment you have the 380-page narrative novel, I, I just, I don't get how people could write or read that, to be honest. It's, it's increasingly hard for me. And like, you know, that's another right. reason why I find such comfort in your work is it like, at least I'm not the only one. And, you know, occasionally know. Well, it, it can happen, but it's just, it's just, in, it, it, it's increasingly rare for me. You know? Right. No, I, I, I know what you mean. Like I, I, the prologue of my book, I talk about Ben Lerner's leaving the Atosha station, which I just love. I don't know if you have yeah. read that one. Oh, I love that book. Loved it. You know, but it, you know, that's a quad, I mean, you know, it's pretty memoiristic and it's pretty essayistic, but you know, it's a kind of novel. I gets published as a novel, but I mean that much of a novel I can certainly read, and I love a lot of novels. You know, 
Coetzea or Camus or Melville or Proust or Stern, but, you know, like the kind of novelty novels, I, I don't know if I'm going to read. And I mean, do you feel like, I, I think, do you feel like you have a slightly more Catholic approach that you like that, that you can still read a good old novel? Um, you know, it's, this is what I've been saying to people is that there's nothing I love more than having a book that I can't wait to get back to. And most of the time for me lately, it's nonfiction, um, or it's like fiction that works in uh, a way that where there's like, you know, I always say there's like very little membrane in between. I think this might even be borrowing language from reality hunger where there's, there's not much happening in, in between the writer and the, the work itself. Exactly. So That's I, every, I know what you mean. Yeah. So I can get excited about it, but like, it, I, I guess like if I had to, to, you know, uh, mark down my tendencies, I would say nonfiction collage work, some fiction, right. but it's, it's just all I want is to find a book that I literally can't put down. And I wish I were one I know, of those. Isn't that I, the best? I know that is the best feeling. Uh, I know what you mean, but it's hard for me increasingly to find those books. And I don't know if it's a function of, I'm just getting old and crotchety or I don't have as much time as I used to, to like dig around, but I know uh, I live for finding those books that like, you know, and, and, I some, know. and some of it too, I think is a function of timing, like where you are in your life when you meet a book matters greatly. And it's the most wonderful thing would in the you world. What do you call it? The footing? Just the timing. The, like to oh, me, the timing, yeah, right. Yeah, like the timing of when you, when you find a book at whatever point you happen to be in your life. Like sometimes the timing can be perfect, you know, where you find just I the right totally book agree. at just the right time. And that's a great – I know what you mean. I, totally. I mean, like I, for instance, it still baffles me. I think I talk about it and how literature saved my life that um, – you know, in graduate school, I just absolutely loved and read all seven volumes of Proust. And, you know, I, I think I talk about in the book how that, that no book has ever been as important to me as that. And yet now I can't read it. And that's okay. Like it, for a while, I used to sort of give myself grief. You know, what's the matter with, with me that I can't rejigger my uh, my worship of Proust? But it sort of did its work for me sort of 25 or 30 years ago and right it's not where my reading head is now well yeah i'm the still, s- i think i'm the same way you know i have yeah. i have like and the thing is though and, and you know you have those books and they still hold like in a you know a, a vaunted place on your shelf you know like it's, it's exactly it's not that you've lost your appreciation it's just you're at a different, no. different headspace i know i know it's fascinating so um, when you say like the title, How Literature Saved My Life, like it, it, I guess it sort of invites an obvious question. Like, did it really save your life? Do you feel like you would be dead if you had not gone down this road? Do you know I know. I mean, people say that. I mean, did it's meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek, I think. You know, like it's not How Literature Saved My Life. It's meant to be a little bit of a mockery of the memoir genre, you know, how I went to AA and solved myself. I mean, obviously <laughs> on some level – I'm totally sincere that, I mean, I, I love literature a lot. It's pretty obvious. I have like a incredibly passionate hunger for literature. I love, I just, you know, it matters to me immensely. And it's not, you know, just, just entertainment or a job or a profession or just an art form in a kind of exquisite, um, coterie activity. I mean, I really obviously care about it a lot, but there's meant to be at least, you know, kind of 20% ironic quotes around it, you know, all those books like, you know, how such and such saved my life or whatever. <laughs> but 
you know, it's also a little serious, or you know, or more than a little serious. I mean, there's meant to be a definite journey in the sense that, you know, I feel like I meant, you know, in the book, I have various impasses I bump into in life having to do with either, you know, just the fact that I'm a mortal human being along with the rest of the planet or that it's very hard to know another human being absolutely through love or, you know, stuttering issues, which had dogged, had, um, had dogged me through, through much of my life or even, you know, kind of mild flirtations with suicidal impulses, so that I really want a literature that really resounds for me in a very visceral way, and so I kind of search about for an art that I can live with, and that, you know, I I do think this whole trope of the wound and the bow is pretty meaningful to me, that, you know, that, you know, every artist has some kind of wound, and he or she spends the rest of their life transforming that that wound into a bow and there's a pretty obvious connection obviously between stuttering and writing and so yeah I mean for me it's fairly real I mean it's a pretty I try and be a little playful with it I don't want it to be like a super somber book you know that I now have my Jane Austen novels and that all is right with the world I mean I feel like what I come to I mean I feel like the last line of the book is awfully crucial and I didn't even have the title of the book until I stumbled into the last line really late where I say something like, you know, I wanted literature to assuage human loneliness, but nothing can assuage human loneliness. Literature doesn't lie about this, which is what makes it essential. I mean, I just feel like that, God, I feel like that's what the whole book has been driving for. Like, I want a literature to save my life, and it's the very literature which reminds me that it can't save my life, which actually saved my life, if that if that makes sense. You know, like the books that, you know, as you know, as we say that completely erase the membrane between life and art and don't lie about the fact of human loneliness that life in a way can't be saved. Those are the books, ironically enough, that to me you know, I would actually absolutely go to the mat for, whether it's, you know, Simon Gray or Leonard Michaels or whatever, that those books that tell me life can't be saved actually save my life. Right. So somebody tell me the truth. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, okay. So you've managed to, I think, carve out some very interesting space in uh, publishing. You know, you're, you're publishing books that are sort of like, you know, their own little genre. You know, it's hard to categorize you. And right. that's not easy. That's not easy to do because, you know, all that, you know, big publishing companies want is to be able to categorize things and know where to put them. And that's not all bad. I understand that impulse, too. But what you've done right. is not easy to do. Um, you're now at a point where you've published several books, um, you know, uh, to, to acclaim. You've been, especially with Reality Hunger, you got to I mean, you were on the Colbert Report, for God's sakes. Like, that's some rare air for a writer. Like, and, and yeah, I don't I know. know. Are you in your Are you in your fifties now? Is that how How old are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm fifty seven. Yeah, I'm I'm fifty six. I'll, I'll be fifty seven uh, in July. Yeah. Okay. So my question is, like, and, and you're about twenty twenty years younger. Yeah, I'm thirty seven. So 20, right. 20 years behind. But um, right. my question is, do you feel like you've gotten where you wanted to go? Do you feel like you've arrived? Do you feel like you've achieved your 
place? Is that something that you, you know, whatever it was that you set out to do when you were a young student at Brown carving, like, what was it? Like, I will dethrone Shakespeare <laughs> into the... I shall dethrone Shakespeare, yeah. yeah I, 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 I can't even remember if I really did that, but I think I, I at least said it, but yeah. <laughs> so but, um, have, you gotten, have you gotten to where you wanted? Do you feel a sense of satisfaction? Are you still hungry and searching like most of the writers I know? Yeah, I mean, I... <clears throat> I mean, well, thanks. That's very generous things to say. And as you said it, I couldn't help but feel like, you know, I was president at my own funeral. It's like, okay, here's what I've done. But, you know, in a really, a really sweet life, like I was helped me to think back, you know, it's like, my God, I've been, been riding pretty seriously for, you know, really about 35 years. That You know, by the time I was a freshman or sophomore at Brown, I was pretty committed to writing so for 30 years i've been you know sort of pushing this boulder up the hill and um you know there's something that is deep in me that is just really really kind of insecure or nervous or self-questioning and self-doubting so i'm never going to be that person you know who wears a bow tie at the black tie dinner and who's you know oh yes i've arrived you know i'm arthur schlesinger up at the the dais and I'm, you know, like I'm, there's something in me that always wants to be an outlier. Like I, I really love that distinction between there's the elephant artist and the termite artist. I think Jonathan Lethem makes that distinction. But anyway, I, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, I mean, I, I was thinking about that just like, you know, if I had said at age 20, you know, I, you know, this this is my 14th book, and, you know, I've got the Salinger book, excuse me, coming out. And yeah, I wanted to ask more. you about that, too. Yeah. yeah. And that um, basically that I'm, you know, a, a publishing writer, and the books somewhat strangely are published by, you know, a very traditional publisher, Knopf. You know, they're not published by, you know, sort of super obscure press. And... um so, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for the fact that I've been able to write the stuff I've written, but there's something is in me is hugely self-questioning, which I think is my strength as a writer and my weakness as a person. So. Yeah, well, it's good for the writer. You don't ever want to get too comfortable, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm, like I was talking to my editor, and she said, you know, David, you know, you can relax. People know who you are. And I said, I just said, it's just me. You know, like, it's the only way I know how to be. Like, I want to always be uh be hungry that i never want to become fat and sassy you know and i probably drive everyone a little bit crazy so anyway <laughs> so uh one more question before i let you go the the salinger book because it's been in the news this past week yeah um t- tell me a little bit about how that project came to be and and what we can expect of it right well yeah i'm sorry that i even brought it up because i've I shouldn't have even mentioned it, but I mean, obviously, anything that's in the press can be out there. But um, I, I signed a non-disclosure agreement so that I can't I can't talk about it at all. Oh, really? Um, yeah, like I, you know, basically, you know, the book will be out in September, and um, and you know, I'm really proud of the book. I really love the book, but um, it's a biography of J.D. Salinger. An autobiography, yeah. Okay. It's a, I'm really excited about it. And, and there's an accompanying movie, right? Exactly. So, and it's a documentary. Although, you know, they're definitely separate. You know, they're definitely separate, but they're they're related. But um, um, 
yeah, beyond that, I probably I probably shouldn't comment too terribly much. I guess you can keep asking questions that I can see if I can answer them. <laughs> but in general, I'm supposed to be sort of you know basically anything in the article. The I you know the there's been quite a few articles about it, but I can't really say anything too much beyond that. Okay. Well, I mean, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious to know how it came to be and how. Uh, you know, if it's an oral, you know, an oral biography, like you know, you conducted interviews with all these people, but I don't know if we're getting right. into territory you can't yeah. discuss. Yeah, I, I, probably, I probably should. I mean, it's it's not like we have any big state secrets. I mean, obviously the book is full of of good stuff, but um, I just I've just been asked, and I've signed an agreement that says that all that'll come out later. So, so what about okay? What's one thing just for my audience? What is one thing you learned about J.D. Salinger in writing this book that no one has ever heard before that will shock people? <laughs> okay, the one I'll, I'll give you the huge revelation. He's the author of of nine stories. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I can't tell you how you know the, how much legal stuff is going on with this book so oh, it's uh, you know it's, they very much wanted to um keep everything under under secrecy so that it's in september we'll have a big a lot all this stuff i'll be able to talk about there well cool maybe we'll have you back on to discuss that when that happens or I can... that would be wonderful yeah that would be i was just um reading about that on a, a website it was like the, the sundance film rights got picked up by pbs american masters is that right um, that I haven't heard. That might be brand new. I hadn't heard about Sundance. That's interesting. Or maybe it, maybe it was unrelated. I just know I've been reading film news from Sundance, but I just, I, I read. Oh, um, I, yeah, I think, I think that, that, that was the thing that, that, uh, information came out at Sundance that blah, blah, right. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. And that's an, yeah, inter- that's a unique, exciting. that's a unique pairing to like roll out, uh, an oral biography of, of, you know, one of the. 20, you know, one of the brightest lights in the literary firmament from the 20th century in tandem with a full-on, like, American Masters documentary. That seems right. like a, a cool way to do it. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm i sorry to be so suddenly silent. I was jabbering happily about my own work, but on the um, the Salinger or biography, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm the co-author of the book, and... My co-author is Shane Salerno, who's the director of the film, and you know he. I've signed a, a non-disclosure agreement with him, so that I, you know, I really can't talk about the book until the the book comes out in September. Okay, well, uh, good enough. Then we'll leave that there. And uh, congratulations on all your successes. This is Thanks, a, big, a, a big year for you. Two books: How Literature yes, Saved My I Life. I know a little. I know. Uh, well. <laughs> Same to you. I just wanted to reiterate that I I, I really love your book. Oh, I appreciate so. it. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Uh, and hopefully, okay, if you're in Los Angeles, let me know, and, and maybe we can meet up. Definitely. Okay, there he is, folks. That is David Shields. How Literature Saved My Life is due out from Knopf any day now. It's a great book. Go get it. And be on the lookout for The Private War of J.D. Salinger, the oral biography written uh, with Shane Salerno, that is due out later this year from Simon & Schuster in September. So uh, now we're on to the main event. My guest today is Matthew Salisis. Great to have him here on the show. He is the author of a couple of chapbooks. One of them is called Our Island of Epidemics, and the other is called We Will Take What We Can Get. And now he is just about to publish a new book. 
It is a novel in flash fiction, and it is titled, I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying. You got that? I'm not saying, I'm just saying. It's available from Civil Coping Mechanisms. Here he is, you guys, Matthew Salisis. This is it. This is the conversation right here. You want to hear it? Here we go. Um, well, I, I, see, I don't know how much I should say um, since I'm in like a situation where I probably don't want to be caught in this situation. <laughs> so let's just say you're, you're, you're at work or you're... Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. I can just say I'm, I'm at work. You're at work, and uh, may I ask what you do? And where are you geographically? Are you in Boston? Uh, I'm in Cambridge right now, and I live just outside in, in Watertown. Okay, so Massachusetts, Boston, the T. Is that the name of the subway there, the T? That's the T, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a nice city. I was there like uh, you know three or four years ago and, uh, you know, just for a couple of days, but it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I think it's one of the prettier cities in the States, and it's, uh, uh, you know, like the, the beauty of the place is really a large reason why, why I like it here. Well, and it's also a situation where there's a, like a, uh, a more pronounced sense of history, uh, certainly, right. th- certainly than there is in like, you know, uh, cities west and, and, and even in the Midwest, you know, like when you're along the eastern seaboard and especially in a place like Boston with all of its colonial past, like, you know, when I was there, that's what I like about it. And, you know, New York City sort of the same way. You have a, a real sense of, uh, you know, d- deeper history, at least as deep as it can go in a country that's only a couple hundred years old or whatever. But, um, you know, I feel like that is missing in lots of po- places in America. Yeah, you know, I came here from um from Prague and then and from then from Korea, so I it was it was nice to have some some sense of 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 time uh you know, like yes, it's only 200 years or so, or something, but at least it's not 20 years or it, like a lot of the cities around uh are much much younger. Well, you got like you got like Paul Revere's house and you've got like, you know, I don't know, I could kind of imagine you know, John Adams walking around or something. I, I need, I like some of that, you know, to an extent, but yeah, you're an American history guy, right? I, I can remember that from some of the podcasts, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like history. I, I just, uh, I guess I, I like it to help me keep my bearings. I, I think it's really undertaught. I think that's maybe something that I've said in conversation on this show before, but you know, they always talk about how we're deficient in the math and sciences and, um, you know, I think we're deficient in history. We don't have, have any idea what happened before, and I, you know, or most of us don't. And I think that that uh, is a huge gap, and I think it's a, you know, it's detrimental. Yeah, well, we're. I, I feel like we're kind of deficient in in most uh, educational <laughs> yeah, matters. Right. Sadly, um, you know, but history for me, uh, it's you know, like I have all this kind of personal history issues where uh, those. It, it seems like it's it, it's really important to know your past, right? And um, uh, maybe even more so for somebody who's adopted or something. Yeah, no, yeah, we should and we we should talk about that for sure. But you you know you mentioned earlier um, that you were at work. Are you teaching? Is that what you're doing for your day job? Or uh, no, I actually I run a a seminar series on equal on inequality, uh, which is fairly interesting. And I um I I I got this job actually from another writer who was who's here and I was looking for a job um, and, I, and I just said, can you get me your job? And he totally went to bat for me. And, and um, so now I'm, I'm at Harvard and I'm just um, uh, kind of being a glorified secretary usually. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it is what it is, I guess. So you work at Harvard? I work at Harvard. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. This is sort of like goodwill hunting-ish, like, you know, like I'm detecting something. So you're working in like kind of like a administrative capacity. Right. Yeah. Um, you're writing um, fiction on the definitely side. definitely not as interesting as goodwill hunting. <laughs> Um, so, but what is it like to be, cause like I have a, this is something else you might've picked up from listening to the show, but I have a fascination with, um, these elite academic institutions, which I never attended. Right. Uh, and like the environment there. And, uh, I'm interested to hear like, what is your perspective working in this role? Like, wh- did you go to one of these schools or no? No, I went to, I went to, uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, okay. uh, Chapel Hill. And I, you know, I actually grew up about an hour south from here, and I didn't want to stay in the cold. I, like, I I did this kind of the the entirely the wrong way. I, I was like, I really want to go somewhere warm. You know, <laughs> so I like looked at schools only, like, but not too hot. So I looked at schools only in like that Mid Atlantic Beltway there, like uh, UVA, UNC, um, Davidson. Uh, and I just made my choice uh, almost purely on weather. When I went to UNC, it was just like this beautiful day. It was like 72 degrees and everybody <laughs> was out on the grass and it was like heaven. It was like, you know, like it was walking into another world coming from up here. Um, and I was just like, yep, this is, I guess this is where I'm going to go. And I only applied to one school and I uh, was fortunate enough to get in, I guess. Um, and I just went there. Well, so, okay. So that, that makes me feel better because that's more along the lines of where I was at. Like I basically applied to college based on uh, like how the pictures looked in the brochure, you know, like I didn't have, um, you know, proper ambition or good sense, you know, when I was going through that process or maybe good guidance, like it just wasn't all there for me. But I, you know, I was like looking at pictures of Colorado and the mountains and I was living in Indiana at the time. And I was like, that's, that's better. You know, <laughs> like I, I need to go somewhere like that where it's sunny and, uh, you know, majestic. Yeah. I was, I was a fool. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I was 18 years old, I guess. Um, uh, but my, I think my parents were also pretty happy about a school that, that costs uh, not that much money compared to most other schools. Um, and so they were they were kind of very happy to push me along in that direction. Um, but I, I just didn't, you know, I didn't think about academics or, or most things, really. I just thought, I want to go someplace warm. Um, UNC also... When when you go down there as a male, they have this weird thing where they're like, oh, uh, you know, by the way, it's like 62 percent women here. And, and, you know, being 18 years old, I was like, oh, that sounds that sounds nice. It's warm. It's (laughs) it's a sea of everybody's happy here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So at that point in your life, I mean, it doesn't sound to me like you had, uh, you know, a a real strong sense of what you were going to do going forward professionally like there or did you you know like when you were at that age were you already thinking like i'm going to be writing um i liked writing and i i minored in creative writing and i probably would have majored in it if i if they had a major at the time um but i I mean that's another thing like even if if i went back now i wouldn't have majored in english and minored in creative writing i would have done something where i could have a practical job that could support my family and uh, you know, I would still write on the side, but um, it, money seems much more crucial now than it than it did then, I guess. Okay, so we're in the same boat because we have a kid. I'm ex- I'm exactly at this crossroads, and there's a part of me um, I, I want to like strangle my younger self for not having better sense. But I think uh, you know, and, and I say better practical sense because you know there are always the stories of writers uh, who are the needle and who have like the needle in the haystack experience where uh, things work out. 
and they get yeah. the breaks and there's like this huge windfall of money or whatever it is, you know, that does happen. And I think that's what drives the great majority of us. Like, you know, it's like that it, and it, you know, and not just writers, but I think Americans and uh, broadly, you know, are driven by this kind of, uh, sure, it's, lot, it's a weird, like lottery mentality. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, practicality in that. And so huh, this is complicated to talk about because there's a lot, I, I find it very complex. Like, you know, there's a part of me that looks at it and tell me if you, you know, have a different view or a similar view, but you know, it's like, yeah, it's difficult. And yeah, it's a needle in the haystack or a one in a million shot, but you know, why not me? And so you have to at least try if you go into it thinking uh, that it's impossible, then, you know, you're never going to have a chance. So I always sort of like, you know, I pushed myself thinking that it, that it could go that way. And I also told myself that, um, you know, you have to be persistent even when people are telling you that it's not practical because that's what the ones who make it do. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And I so mean, I was told, I mean, I was told from a young age that, or from the time when I thought I, I wanted to write that it wasn't a practical uh, use of my time, but I just blocked it out, you know, right? Like, and in some ways that was a good thing, but in some ways that was a, a pretty bad decision, uh, life-wise, money-wise, like career-wise. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think you have to kind of have a fool sensibility in some ways, right? You have to believe in yourself. It, it's like the, like the, uh, like the jerk. I actually, it's been a really long time since I watched that movie, but I kind of remember him, uh, you know, just kind of blithely going along his own path. Um, and, and that's, you have to do that in in some ways you have to be, uh, completely confident in something that the rest of the world thinks is, is mostly useless. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, a, and, but then, you know, there's that element of it. Um, you know, I was kind of told to just like pursue what I loved as a kid, you know, it was like, whatever you love, you know, go that way and you know, the money will follow. Or something. Oh yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, it's <laughs> like was, you know, like I you was told to go into math. <laughs> well, but it's like you know, it's like if you don't love what you're doing, then you're not going to be happy. You know what I'm saying? If you if you pursue something that you're truly interested in, then you know, in the end, it'll work out better. Was essentially the the guiding you know information that I recall anyway from childhood, and that hasn't really proven itself to be true. Um, <laughs> and then I think like you know the other part of it. Uh, which is sort of uh, a function of maybe unlucky timing. You know, there are different there are differing views on this as well. But you know, I got into publishing um, and pursuing this line of work in what the late '90s, I guess, or early to you know early aughts, late '90s. Um, and this is at a time when you know publishing and journalism and media in general was going through these like major cataclysms and. You know, it's not as easy as it used to be for people who write books to find uh, day jobs writing for magazines or, you know, selling stories like those days are gone. So it's not yeah. only, it's not only bad in terms of breadwinning for authors, except for the very, very fortunate few. But it's also a really rough time for people who write for newspapers or magazines. And, you know, the whole thing is getting squeezed. And then you have the global economic crush. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that are that are um, at play here. And, you know, then you have a kid and it's like, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> like, what are we going to do? <laughs> right. Uh, so how do you navigate that? And like, how do you keep yourself from getting too bogged down by it? Um, I guess I, I look, I kind of look at it uh, as if 
there are a few like attainable goals, you know, like a, you could teach, right? I, I really actually really like teaching and um, you know, I'm thinking about going back now for a PhD or something just so I can kind of continue in that career. And, and you know, there are a few ways you can make money teaching kind of being the foremost way or, you know, if you, if you have the kind of uh, balls maybe to kind of go in and try to freelance uh, and, and you can stick with that for a while without having the responsibility of a family, then you can, you can still kind of make, make enough to get by that way. Right. Um, maybe you, you're not going to get rich, but there are a few different career paths you can go down if you kind of stick it out and keep them in mind as a goal, perhaps. I'm yeah. not sure. I, maybe, maybe it's still just me fooling myself. You know, well, like, but here's the thing. Cause I'm in the same, I've had the same like thought, you know, and I've actually taught before where it's like, okay, yeah, you can teach. But I was teaching at a community college level and I was an adjunct and the pay was horrendous. Like it wouldn't, right. it wouldn't support a family and then even if you get one of the cushy, like, tenure-track teaching jobs at a good university, um, there is kind of a ceiling, I guess, on what you can make. Unless, of course, like, your publishing career takes off. And, like, there's a part of me, especially because I live in Los Angeles and the cost of living is high. And I'm sure in Boston it's not exactly cheap either. Um, no. You know, where it's a situation where it's like, uh, well, like, what, what do I do? Like, I, if I teach, there's sort of a ceiling on how much I can make. And... You know, it, it just makes me feel like shit because it's like, God, I could be teaching and helping students learn and everything else, but it just comes down to at the end of the day, like, can I make enough money? <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I think those ceilings are are pretty high. Like, if you get in, you know, once you get into your later later parts of the career, I mean, I think it's all just a matter of just going the distance, right? I, there's a long period of time in either of those career paths where you're just going to be kind of poor, and and you have to. Uh, either stick it out or change careers, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but I do think it's a lot of, like what you were saying, right? It's persistence. The people who kind of make a life out of this are people who are willing to go through a, a period of time, usually, right, where they aren't uh, making enough money, perhaps, to have the kind of life that they wish they had. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, and like, ideally, I think the scenario plays out where you go through that strife and you persist. And then you get your break. And those are the stories that we read about. And I don't want to strike too depressing of a note. I, <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't want you to hang up and start drinking. But, um, you know, I think that the, like the vast majority of people, I would have to believe that doesn't happen. <laughs> right. And so, you know, these people like sacrifice. And that's what I'm concerned about, I guess. It's like, God, I'm, I, you know, and especially once you have a child and you're trying to be a good dad, it's like, you know, it was one thing when I was single and, or even just when my wife and I were dating or we were married without a kid, you know, it was like I was gambling, but I wasn't really gambling, um, with anyone's chips, but my own, but then you get into a relationship. And then especially when you have a child, to me, it feels like I'm rolling my daughter's dice. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. And yeah. I mean, I think all parenting is like that. I, I, you know, I, I think parenting is extremely frightening, and and it's a lot of tr hoping that you can uh, persist and and be a good parent in the end, but not really knowing. I mean, you'll never, you won't know until your kid is grown up, right? You, you, there's so many things you can do wrong along the way, and it, there's everybody makes mistakes, right? So I'm I'm always like, I think I'm just as af or much more afraid of of the parenting aspects and like the the similarities there that, you know, like. It's very easy to fail, uh, and you don't really know whether you failed until you have mis failed miserably, right? 
You know, do you know what I mean? Like if I, if I screw up now, you know, I won't really know the effects of that until 15, 20 years down the road when my daughter's in therapy and, and like blaming me for all of her problems, probably rightly. Right. And if, and if I do a good job, it looks like nothing's happening. And then suddenly, or not, not suddenly, but like extremely gradually, uh, she turns out to be, you know, a much better adjusted person than I am. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I'm like, I guess I'm most focused, right? I mean, she, my daughter's only two, like two and a half. How old is your daughter? One and a half. One and a half. Okay. So we're basically in the same boat, but you know, like right now, I guess I'm most focused on like, how am I going to support her and give her everything that she needs? Um, and then as far as like, you know, I mean, she seems like a pretty happy go lucky, smart, nice kid right now. I mean, she's two and a half, you know, like right, every, right. Every, everything she says is cute. And, um, she has fun, like walking to the store, you know, every, everything's fun for her. It seems like, so it's like a joy to be around somebody like that. Um, so I think that part of it, and as long as I'm not like, uh, you know, freaking out and I'm, I, I try to make great efforts to be, uh, you know, conscious of my behavior in front of her, just like most good parents or parents who are trying their best, you know, but, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I'm most focused on the nuts and bolts of how to provide. And I feel right like now, you mean right now. Yeah. But I also feel like in the long run, like, and maybe this is like a case of hubris or, um, you know, delusional overconfidence. Like, you know, if you're, if you're kind to your child and you're there for them and you give a good faith effort to be as good of a parent as you can be, like, like what more can you do? You know what I'm saying? Like I, I find myself resistant to trying to read like every parenting book that comes out and like that kind of process to me becomes absurd. Like after a while, I think you just have to trust your instincts. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's, I, it's, it's hard for me to think about it that way because I feel like my parents tried their hardest and I still ended up pretty screwed up, you know, and, and, and a lot of it's not their fault. Um, I mean, obviously my daughter's not uh, hasn't gone through the same kind of tra- traumatic break from uh, her birth parents and won't, but it's uh, I, I don't I think there are kind of factors beyond trying your hardest, and and I mean maybe that's what really frightens me so much that like I know I'm going to try my hardest, but I think there's still like a, a very real possibility that that your hardest is not, I, I, we're, we're painting like a really bleak picture of both like life, uh, the writing world and like everything that kind of matters to me right now. But, um, it, it's frightening. I, these, you know, the, the future is really frightening. And the more you think about it, like it's kind of the, the more crippling it can be, you know? Yeah. You just have to kind of take it one day at a time. And you know, what, what just surfaced in my mind is, as you were saying this is, you know, especially about when I'm thinking generationally, you know, like our parents' generation, um, I'm assuming like your adopted parents or your parents or whatever, you know, I don't know how the terminology works, but the people who raised you, um, they're baby boomers. Uh, yeah, they're baby boomers. I guess that would be safe to say. Okay. Um, My parents were born in like the 1940s. Yeah. My, my dad was, and my mom a little bit later. Okay. But, you know, you look at that generation and that generation had everything. And, uh, you know, I, and I mean, when I think about it, especially in like a broader historical context, I mean like social welfare and well, ju- just like an, a protracted economic boom post World War II, uh, mm-hmm. the term teenager was invented, I think, for their generation. Like they were the first teenagers who had cars and like got to go driving and 
they went to college and college was basically cheap, you know, for people in their generation, like to go to colleges, like it was, you know, California state schools were essentially free and, uh, they had the GI bill and they had, um, you know, basically for their entire professional lives. And obviously there's a zillion exceptions to the rule, but you know, if you look at the broad economic trends for that generation, like it was essentially like a, a, a moon rocket. And not only that, they had uh, drug experiences in the 60s. They got to go through all that and have like free love and, you know, party at Woodstock. And do you know what I'm saying? And then they had, it was like pre-AIDS sex and, you know, they had a very good, they had a very good run. And then, you know, for our generation, <laughs> uh, I mean, and they had a very good run compared to us, I think. And then they also had a very good run, a very, very good run compared to um, the human, you know, human beings who preceded them for centuries you know it's just an unusually lucky run and so you know i think a lot of it when it comes to parenting uh is out of our hands almost i mean you feel like i mean i can kind of feel that right now like the forces of history and you know the powers that be or whatever you know it's a it's a rough time and i didn't feel i don't feel like i did anything to cause the global economic collapse, you know, like, right. um, or the, or the, you know, major cataclysms in the world of media and publishing, like these things are sort of just happening and you have to react to them. And, you know, I'm not advocating uh, helplessness. I, I think you, you know, you always have to try to be proactive and take things one day at a time. But I also think that, you know, like, like you were saying earlier, sometimes life or maybe life just is hard and we're just having normal hard lives. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, right, like a lot of uh, the baby boomers that had a good had a good are, are a specific type of baby boomers, right? They're like, I, I mean, mainly white males had it good, right? I mean, if you, you're talking like people born in the 40s, um, you know, growing up before the 60s, right? Like a lot of people had it really much worse than now, right? Because of the same social structures that made it great to be a white male in the in the 50s or, or whatever right right so i mean if i if you put me back in you know and, and let me be born in the 40s <laughs> right. uh, in america right then i'm pretty much screwed you know right so it's not really like it's not true for everyone and, and part of like the the change in, in inequality or um is 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 like maybe it's a little bit worse for some people it's also better for some people um that's right you know, that's right? right well no i mean that's the thing like we can talk about all the difficulties but there's also been like some enormous progress made and you know it's i guess you just have to decide how to be like i, I these are all things i've been wrestling with you know like how do you i don't know like I, I would hope that i got as i get older i would be less confused but i feel like i just get more and more confused you know what i'm saying oh, yeah <laughs> how do we stop this trend <laughs> i i think it's more about like just accepting that you're confused i mean that's what i'm trying to do now I, and then I, I think you know before i felt much less confused, but I think I was maybe even more confused than I am now, you know, like, <laughs> right. but I was just in denial. Like I learned a lot about what I write about. I think it's just like these, these denial narratives, you know, where somebody is kind of in denial their whole life and then, you know, it kind of comes out of it or fails to come out of it. Um, and it, and for much of my life, I was just in, in like incredible amounts of denial from like race to like, just you know like this strange sense of of confidence about where the world was going and to like my own personal situation and and just you know and 
and now I, I kind of am just realizing how confused I've always been. Um, and that seems like a, like a more secure place almost where you just like you're secure and knowing how insecure you are. Yeah. It's more honest. It's more honest, I think at the very least. And, um, it's also funnier. I don't know. There's something just inherently like, this is it's what definitely I, this, it's what I fall back on. And you know, I, this is another thing related to parenthood that I kind of wrestle with is like, what do I say to my daughter? Like, what do I say? Like if I had to give, and I'm not inclined to give much advice, even though I guess that's, um, that's part of the role of being a parent is that you have to give advice, but you know, there's nothing worse than giving bad advice and there's nothing worse than like getting hammered over the head with advice from some blowhard, you know? So I, I don't want to be that guy. And it's like, you know, you have to approach it with some humility. And so it's like, what about just saying to your kid, like, you know, ultimately just be kind. <laughs> Is that lazy? That's, you know, yeah, just, that's just, nice. No, just, I like that, actually. But you hear about these stories where somebody gives a kid uh, some crucial piece of advice when he's 10 years old and then and he like lives by that his entire life and is better off for it. Um, but then they're all, you know, like you're right. There's like also stories of, of getting terrible advice and and kind of living with that for a long time before you realize that it was bad advice. Right. And and if you don't give advice somebody else is going to give your kid advice and you don't know what that advice will be, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you're kind of forced into a position where you, you have to, I mean, your kid trusts you now uh, more than anyone, but it's not always going to be the case. Right. And that's, and that's also like another really frightening thing to me, you know, like right now, um, you know, with great, with great uh, power becomes great responsibility, right? Like I have a lot of responsibility for how my kid turns out, um, but there's going to come a point where she is more reliant or, or more trusting of her like friends who are also, you know, kids and, and don't really know what the world is like and, and her teachers. And, um, and you kind of have to hope that you've given her the right basis to, to kind of choose the right friends and, and to know which advice to listen to or not. And, and that's you know, like, that's on you and you can't really see what, what's, you know, what will come of your, your basis until she starts building the house on top of it. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing they, you know, they're going to pull away and that's a natural, it's a natural process. And it's already even, you can already see like weird, like kind of green shoots of that happening at a very young age, like the, just yesterday, uh, I think it was yesterday. I was saying to my daughter, I was like, I was like, Evan, come over here and give, give your dad a hug. And she's like, I can't do that right now, dad. I have to scratch my knee, (laughs) (laughs) but it was very serious. You know, it's like, I don't have time for you. I have to, I have a knee, I have a knee to scratch. And it was really funny, but I was also in the back of my mind was going, okay, so like, this is going to happen. Like, you know, eventually she's not going to have time for me. (laughs) Right. My daughter's in the no stage now. And so she just thinks it's hilarious to say no to everything. Like (laughs) even if she really wants that thing, she'll just say no. And then she'll, she'll go and do it. But she, she likes to say no first. And she laughs about it. Um, I, I can, my, my daughter and my wife are now in Korea for three months. So I'm like super lonely and, and, um, wondering a lot. I mean, like maybe all of this fear is, is partly like, I'm I'm not, I'm not around my kid right now. And it's, you know, it's in some ways it's it's like withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, withdrawal, but also, um, you know, I've been, I've been writing actually this, this book online about adoption and, because I needed something to do for three months, right? Um, and I think a large part of what I fear is is sort of uh, the idea that she's kind of like young enough to know um, that I'm not there 
and and not coming back for a while, but but not old enough to know like why why right and and so I I'm like worried that she's going to just feel like this abandonment, and I know like how shitty that can be for the rest of your life, you know, even whether, whether you like remember that time or not, like, you know, like I, I talked about this on Twitter because like Twitter is kind of like my go-to right now. Um, it's, it's kind of sad, but, uh, you know, and people are like, you know, she's not going to remember this, you know, she won't remember this even like a year from now or a few months from now. Uh, and, and that's true, right? She's not going to remember this in her like physical memory or whatever, but she'll, there's like this, you know, emotional memory that, is much more powerful and much more scary and like much more confusing, uh, you know? Yeah. Well, so why is she in Korea? Like, first of all, why is she over there for three months? Uh, so my wife is Korean and she's over there just visiting family and, and getting to know the culture and, and hopefully learning a lot of the language. Um, and three months is kind of like the limit on the visa on the time, amount of time you can leave, uh, on the visa or something. And, you know, we wanted her to have like a good chunk of time to absorb everything, um, but it's also, you know, it's also a, a, a good chunk of time. You know, it's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tough. So, uh, let's talk about your uh, childhood and uh, like the circumstances of your adoption, because I know that factors into your work and is obviously central to who you are. And uh, you know, just give listeners an idea of what that experience was like and how it happened. Um, sure. So I've actually only started kind of thinking about this uh, in the last few years, or I mean, well, maybe just acknowledging that I was, I've been thinking about it. Um, but I was adopted when I was two uh, to a white family in Connecticut, and um, I grew up in a in a largely white town, you know, like 99% white. I uh, had a Taiwanese friend when I was younger, and he was kind of like you know, like one of the other few Asians in town and he lived on my street. So his mom kind of took care of me and uh, fed me rice and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, and then uh, I like like in Connecticut seems like, I mean, like I, you know, I grew up in a a mostly white suburb, but for something about Connecticut seems like ultra white or something, you know, like people's teeth are whiter in Connecticut in my imagination. (laughs) Uh, You know, they could put that on the, on the advertisements or something, but (laughs) It's it's a suburb. It's the Holstead's kind of a suburb, half a suburb of Boston, half a suburb of New York, right? I mean, that's the that's the stereotype, and it really is kind of cut down the line. Like I lived almost on that line, so most of the people in my town would like support everything Boston, you know, Red Sox and Patriots, etc. Uh, and then there were a few outliers who supported everything New York uh, because their parents either. Uh, worked in New York or, or came more from that area. Um, and, and as you got further west, right, everybody was kind of people commuting from New York or with serious ties to New York. And as you got further northeast, it was all people who were attached to Boston in some way. So it, it is in some ways just a, you know, a big uh, run of similar looking houses in the woods and, you know, with nice lawns and et cetera. So what, why were you adopted? I mean, you were in Korea, you were born there, you were two when you were adopted? Yeah, well, so the story the agency uh, gave my parents was that I was abandoned, uh, I think, under a bridge by my mother, uh, luckily found, um, brought to an orphanage, uh, given a name, etc. And then, um, you know, I, I stayed there until I was two and a half, and then 
uh, was adopted by my parents who couldn't have uh, children. So, but you know, I, it, since you know, just recently, I've kind of found out that a lot of these stories are are not true. So I'm not really sure what actually happened. You know. So you've never reconnected with your birth parents? No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, it's complicated. It's pretty complicated. Is there but any? Is I, there any? Is there any way for you to find out that information? Uh, on the surface, no. But if, from talking to other adoptees, it seems like if you start digging, that there's often a lot more information than they than they let on. Right. You know, and that there could be a way of finding them. Uh, but I haven't gone down that avenue yet, and I, I'm not really sure what I want to do in that area. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. You know, it's like how do you? I have a friend who was adopted, and he went. You know, he met his birth mother for the first time when he was 25. And I remember being like privy to that experience just because we were close friends in college, and I, I even lived with him for a while. And you know, it was it was totally fascinating, uh, obviously on some levels, but it was also very strange. And you know, I think they've kind of kept in touch a little bit, but um, you know, it, I don't think it's essential necessarily. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, like it's a person that bore you, but I mean, I don't know anything about her and that mystery is uh, something that some people really want to find out and, and sometimes something that you don't really want to find out. And I'm just at that stage now that I, right. I don't really know, you know, either which way I want to go. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for, you know, like all of a sudden right. you could be meeting some crazy person, but uh, what about uh, what about when you talked about you know the emotional memory or the memory that um, you know you, the, the memories that might be currently uh, taking hold in your daughter you know because she's over in Korea and you're not there um, you know obviously you were two and a half when you were adopted so there were two and a half years of your life that were presumably somewhat tumultuous or difficult as you were um, you know uh, taken to this orphanage. Yeah, they must have been really bad. Actually, I found out recently. I mean, I was just home uh, maybe for Christmas or something. My parents were like, oh, when you came, you couldn't walk. You know, like, I didn't know this until like a year ago that I, I you know, I'd spent two and a half years and was unable to walk when I arrived here. Wow. Um, you know, I didn't, I couldn't speak. I didn't, I didn't say anything. Uh, There's, I mean, clearly some pretty bad stuff was happening. I have like these scars on my body that I know where, don't know where they're from, I'm, you know. Like where? Uh, there's some on my ankles and like on my knee and just a few different places just that look like a, like a line where somebody, or just where I'd been cut by something, but I, you know, badly enough to scar, but I don't know what they're from really. Wow. I mean, and uh, just, I've and heard just these so... stories of like kids in orphanages being like chained to their beds and that, and like that, that's why they can't walk because it's just easier to take care of them if they're just constantly in their beds. I mean, I have no idea if that's what happened or not, but uh, anything really could be true. It's scary. Jesus. Oh yeah. And just so people, you know, people who are listening who don't have kids or have experience with toddlers, like, you know, kids walk as early as like nine months. And yeah, my kid was walking in nine months yeah. pretty proficiently. So to be two and a half and not to be able to walk is pretty significant. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and not to be able to talk too. I mean, yeah. Geez. That's crazy. So I couldn't say, you know, I, I'm not going to hug you right now because I really need to scratch my knee. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what was like? What are your earliest memories of childhood? Where do you? Where does it begin for you? It begins in Connecticut. 
Yeah, it actually begins in Germany, as far as I can tell. And I have a like a kind of a notoriously bad memory. Um, I took yeah. this memory test once that said I had the memory of a 65-year-old. <laughs> and that was when I was in in high school or, or getting in college. <clears throat> so I'm sure it's probably gotten worse since then. Um, and it's like a... You know, it's a, it's a real sticking point sometimes uh, with my wife because I, you know, like she knows that I have a terrible memory, but sometimes it still just makes me really angry. Um, you know, right? I, I I can understand why she'd be frustrated. But uh, my first memories are when I was five, and my my dad took me on a trip to Germany. Um, we're like sitting on a rock. My dad bought a green visor. I, I can picture it pretty well, um, but I can't really see anything before that time. Although from time to time things will pop up in my memory and I can't really place them. Like maybe they're from before that and maybe not. Right. So what, and, and what, like what, um, like at what point did you realize that you were adopted? Like, did your parents tell you at a young age or was it something you, I mean, because you're, you're of, you know, Korean origin and your parents are, uh, what Caucasian from Connecticut. Yeah. So, I mean, at what point, I mean, it's like, you know, my sister adopted a, um, uh, a young girl and, uh, in, you know, in her infancy and they've given her the books when she was like, you know, really young and they've been telling her from the get go, but like, how did, how did you discover yeah. this? Like, how did your parents handle that uh, transfer of information? Uh, so, I mean, I guess it's two different questions, right? When did you know you were adopted? When did you realize you were adopted? And and this is kind of a thing that happens. I think, um, you know, my parents told me I was adopted from, from the beginning. So I, I mean, I, it's, they couldn't have hit it anyways. Um, so I knew I was adopted, but I didn't really realize that I was different from them. Um, I, I don't even know, maybe for, if not for a while though, probably maybe around like seven or eight. Um, but there's this book, this book that's kind of haunted me my entire life called, uh, without really knowing it, called, um, we adopted you, Benjamin Koo, and in it there's a scene where he, you know, he's like, he thinks he's the same as his parents, and then one day, like, suddenly he looks in the mirror and just realizes, like, I don't look the same as my parents, and for me, that was, that seemed like a pretty true-to-life experience. Like, I didn't, I didn't, I knew, but I didn't know, you know, like, I didn't really know that I was different until uh, I was pretty grown up, and that, you know, like, that does quite a number on you in some ways how like how old um probably like seven or eight. Oh, mean, okay okay i was thinking like high school maybe a little older i mean you know yeah maybe a little older okay and so and then at what point like did you have to go to therapy or did you were you just like did you become like you know what was the emotional um reaction that you had do you know what i'm saying like how did that manifest what you when you say it did a number on you like what does that mean it manifested mostly in denial you know like i i still tried to think of my i still like kind of actively thought of myself as white and and uh differentiated myself from other asians and um you know like even when i when i went to college that was kind of the first time when i thought uh you know like you can you have a chance to remake yourself or be closer to who you are and I went to like one Asian American meeting and in my infinite wisdom of 18, I I thought, oh, these, these Asians, they're so clicky. I can't do this and I'm not like this. <laughs> so I wrote it off and, and just kept doing what I was doing. Um, do you until, look, do you look at that as a mistake in hindsight? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't look at it as like a good decision, 
but it's it's hard to tell that if I had done anything different that it wouldn't it would have really changed my viewpoint. I, I don't think I was ready yet. I, and that seems ridiculous to say when you're like 18 years old, like you're in a, you're like technically an adult, you're legally an adult. But I wasn't ready yet. I mean, I'm still I'm like just starting to be ready now. Um, but I did have like some experiences in college where I took a, I took an Asian American literature class when I was uh, I only did three years, so it was my third year. Um, and, uh, what you graduate, really, you graduated in three years. Yeah, I did. I got all these, I, I don't really know why I got all this credit when I, when I came into school, but they gave me like almost a year's worth of credits. Why did you go and to, did I, you go to like AP classes in high school? I did do a couple. Um, and then we were able to, my, my high school campuses was, or used to be part of the Yukon campus. And so I took a couple classes at, at the university of Connecticut and then, they gave me a few English credits. Uh, I'm not really sure why. Um, and by the time everything was added up, I had like a year's of, years worth of credits. You know, like I did three years and I spent half a, half a year in Australia, like taking zero classes and kind of traveling around. Where in Australia? In Wollongong. It's about like a, an hour south of, of, um, of Sydney. Okay. I did a semester abroad in Australia when I was in college. So. Oh, where? But I was up in Brisbane. Oh yeah, I, I was I, I was such a you know, I was fucking off so royally. I think I for an entire semester I took a full course load, and for three or four classes that I took, I was inside of a classroom for the entire semester, um, no more than fifteen times for all cl- all the classes combined over the entire semester, and I passed all of them. I have no idea how. Yeah, that's impressive. Although I don't really know how the grades work there. Like they just work on a very different system. There it was numbers, like words. They're, for me, they were like words. They were like good, you know, like acceptable. I, it was very strange, and I, I only had classes Tuesday and Thursday, so I would just go places from like Friday to Monday. You know, I traveled a lot. I, I probably saw half the country, and um, you know, I just traveled every weekend, and I, I went to uh, to New Zealand too for ten days and just drove around in an RV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we did myself. that. Yeah. yeah, we had a similar experience. That's be- it's a beautiful country, and like the, you know, Australia is just wide open, and it, you know, the beaches, especially up in the neck of the woods where I was going to school, um, it's like Southern California, like in the 1930s when there's like nobody there. I mean, the, the beaches are completely empty. It's crazy. There, there's a, the reef too, right? Yeah, I mean, all of it. It's a beautiful country. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, what do your folks do? Like, do you uh, do you have they're... any? They're both librarians, kind of. My mom is like a teacher, but also a librarian. Or I mean, they're both retired now, but they they were. And my dad was mainly a librarian and a media specialist, um, and also taught a couple classes occasionally. Okay, so you were sort of. I mean, you, you were sort of born into a literary household. I, yeah, I grew up in, with books. You know, like books. My parents always. Uh, would, whenever we went to a bookstore, they would always let us buy a book, and my parents always gave us books for you know holidays, birthdays, um, books were really the thing, uh, that, that kind of got me out of my head. Uh, and, and I would, I, in my family, I'm kind of famous for how I would read a book and not be able to acknowledge that there was an outside world. Like I would be reading and my parents would be talking to me. And then later they would say, you know, like we just told you all of this stuff. And I, and I would not even know that they had said anything. Wow. So what is that? Is that a power of concentration or is that some sort of like, um, I don't even know, detachment? Like, what is it? I don't know. I, maybe it was like, a, I, I also, 
had this, I was able to kind of see a book, you know, I would read it and I would actually like, I would be able to see it like a movie. Um, and I'm just totally not able to do that anymore. But at, when I was a kid, I used to just, you know, it would kind of forget that there were words there and I would just kind of see the images. Um, but it's totally gone now. I, I mean, <laughs> miss it like crazy. Yeah. You know? Well, I've had, you know, like, tell me if this is true for you, cause it's true for me to an extent, but, um, it's harder to read than it used to be. And no, it's definitely harder than reading. Like not only like to find the time because of uh, obvious like parental responsibilities and work responsibilities, but it's actually like harder for me to physically read a book. And I think it's got to be a function of the internet. It's got to be a function of having a, an iPhone. Uh, I don't know what it is. Just like cultural forces conspiring or me not having the proper discipline. Um, I just got rid of Facebook and I got rid of cable television. I think part of it is just that fear. It's like, why am I not able to read books the way that I used to at the same rate of speed? And, you know, it's just, they're not like, especially fiction. It's harder for me to access. And I don't know why. Yeah. It's <laughs> Entirely. a shallows thing, right? It's, it's rewiring our brains. And I, I mean, I can, uh, that seems to ring true to me too, that it's just, it's changing the way people think. Um, I mean, I think that's part of, I, sometimes I think, writers need to kind of be taking advantage or like just even like acknowledging that that's happening and trying to write more with that in mind. Um, well, you write, I mean, your, your, your new book is like written in these short bursts and like that to me is a, is a style that is very appealing as a reader. Um, yeah. like I find it and I find it reflective of, um, the way that I read on an everyday basis online. You know, that's the thing. It's like, I think that's why I like literary collage so much because it seems to reflect uh, life as it's lived now, especially for people who are consuming media through a computer or a smartphone. Right. Though on the other hand, right, people say you know nobody wants to buy short story collections or nobody like in theory people want to read short things, but in sales numbers that theory doesn't seem to add up. Um, and so there's like I think there's this kind of competing things going on. One where people uh, really want the kind of short bursts and and and, and in, inherent in those short bursts really in and what I think is really interesting about them is that you know it leaves so much room for the reader to kind of make the connections between different places and in different different things that happen in the story right there's so much more that a reader has to do um, but then there's also this this feeling I think that people want to be immersed in something and and that's why they you know, like they go to books or novels to kind of get away from that, those short bursts of the world and, and kind of be able to keep going back to this one larger, one larger thing. So uh, uh, there's like these competing thing, brainwaves or something that, that I see happening here. I, I don't know. It's, does that seem like it's right to yeah, you? Yeah, no, I, I don't think, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're on the right track, at least as far as I can understand it. Like, I don't think there's a rule. Uh, right. You know, there's obviously, and you can talk about, um, short bursts and, you know, kind of this, uh, is particleized even a word, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, uh, collage, literary collage or, um, you know, books that work in these kind of, uh, you know, paragraph by paragraph Flash. bursts. Yeah. But then I think that, you know, that you can look at those and then you can look at, uh, Harry Potter books and say that you, you can sit an eight year old down and they'll read an entire 500 page novel like happily. And I think that there's room in the world for all of it, but I just uh I feel like the middle books are the ones that don't really do really well anymore. Like people like, you know, like short books and also really long long books, you know, but it seems like the books that used to be like 350 pages, 
you know, I feel like when I was younger, all books were like, you know, like that was like a very normal length. Yeah. And now it's hard for me. Maybe they're out there all over the place, but I never read them. Like I never read a book of that, that's, that is that length, you know, like I'm reading like 250 page books or 200 page books or shorter. Yeah. yeah it's and then weird. Like occasionally like really long books, like 800, page, like the instructions or something. Right. Yeah. And that's like, it's like this experience. You're like, this is going to be my month. Like I'm going to, you know, take off on this, uh, adventure and it becomes like and it also becomes like a feeling of accomplishment it is it is a great feeling to like really enjoy and uh, read uh to completion like a, a thousand page book or something like that that's a great feeling but it doesn't yeah. you know the thing the, the thing about me too because uh, it's it's strange like i've talked about this repeatedly on this show like how i'm so drawn to these like lean novels um and lean books and yeah. you know in general whether it's nonfiction or fiction you know and um uh, it's it you know there's something to that, you know, I think in terms of like how I consume and how I want to write and what's happening to the rewiring of my brain. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess like the other part of it for me is that I find it, I find it hard to find a book that I'm completely, uh, engrossed by or addicted to it. it it's, it used to be easier. Like I could pick up just about anything back in the day. But now it's like when I find one of those books, it's so exciting because uh, I can't wait to get back to it. And I love that feeling, but it's not, it's not always easy. Like it requires almost research and like active browsing. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I, I definitely know what you're saying. Uh, and it's sometimes it's, it's the case that you find one, but it's, it's, you know, like you can get engrossed in it, but you don't feel like it's satisfying your like literary literary needs or something, right? Like I just read The Lost City of Z and it was very page turnery. Like I would, you know, I could read over it very quickly and skip large chunks almost. And like parts of the page I would just kind of just read over because they weren't that interesting. They didn't have to do with the story. Um, but I didn't feel like I felt like it was really hitting me. Like this is this is how I was describing it. Like it, it was hitting me on like the wow factor. Like every page was like, wow, 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 you know, but there was never like a feeling like that I was having my emotions like twisted up and like reached on every single level. And, and, and it's hard to find a book that does both. It's really hard. Yeah. It's like, and it's a timing issue too. It's like, you know, finding just the right book at the, you know, that speaks to you at this particular moment in your life and whatever happens to be going on, you know, it's like that experience of reading is the biggest thrill. And I just find that, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably just not doing a good enough job curating and staying curious. And, you know, I don't know. I, I go well, over to my mind. How do you give up on books? Are you like, or the kind of person who just picks it up and will give up after a few pages? Yes. Or yes. How long? Yeah. I'm, I'm not patient. Like it, it's like, it's, it's either got me or it doesn't. And I should probably be a bit more patient, but it's just hard for me. And like, the thing is, is that, um, if a book does get me, like I will read it in a day. You know what I'm saying? Like right. uh, I'm so happy. Like I, I want to love a book. I'm not looking at books with like a, I'm not a critic. You know, like, that's not my bearing uh, as a person. You know, like I don't sit there and pick a book apart. I just and I don't like, you know, light it on fire and get angry at it. I just put it. I just put it down. You know. Like, yeah. Well, you don't read books that you don't like, right? I I never read books I don't like. People are like, well, how come every everything you read you give a high rating to? Because it's because like I, if I don't like it, I don't finish it you know or i don't pick it up in the first place because i know i won't like this book right right and that's like i've argued that for a long time with regard to reviews it's like it's hard enough just to get a book in print like why even print negative reviews just review the books that you like that's all that people should do (laughs) 
Yeah, um, I agree. Too. I mean, unless the book is so huge that it, you know, that it needs kind of like a, a balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, but there are very few books like that. So, um, before I let you go, I mean, I want to, I want to learn some more about, uh, your life and I, I never got a chance to ask, like, do you have siblings? I do. I have, I have two siblings. They're both also from adopted from Korea. Um, it's something we actually hardly ever talk about or uh, with my sister. I, I don't think I've ever talked about it with her. Um, but yeah, I have siblings. I'm the oldest. Um, you know, my, my siblings were both, both adopted when they were babies. So it was kind of a different experience for them. Um, but you guys don't talk about the, that common. No, I, th- I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm reading, um, I just started the language of blood by Jane Jong Trenka and it's, it's a, like a adoption memoir. Uh, I think it's, it seems to be kind of a search for birth parents thing. Um, but she also mentions, and I've, I've heard this from other adoptees too, that she has a sister, a biological sister who was adopted with her. Um, and they just never talk about adoption, you know? And, and I think it's, it's not that uncommon, you know, it's a very, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to talk about. And it's, it's something that you're really protective of, um, and and I think of a part of it is like a worry that your sibling is having a completely different experience from you, um, or that she, that she or he wouldn't really isn't getting the same the same feelings that you are, um, and that that would somehow uh, change how you felt about it, or or like lessen the way that you feel like the truth of what you're feeling. Um, and then there's also like the fear that they're having the exact same experience and, and that like, maybe you're, there's just like this universal thing that happens and you're just like fucked, you know, like <laughs> that's just how it is for you and you'll never be able to escape it. Right. And so, um, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure what it is exactly, but we don't talk about it now. Do you think that you ever will? Like do you have any plans to, or hopes to, or is it just one of those things where it's like, Nah. I've just started talking about it with my brother, and I think a large part of it is that I've been like I've started to become really public with my feelings, uh, you know, and so I'm writing a, a lot more about it and and posting that on Facebook, which I hate, um, but I am doing it anyway. And and you know, my brother's reading it, and my parents are reading it, and people are reading these things and giving me feedback. And I think it seems like, you know, it's hard to put yourself out there for the first time, and and that seems. I mean, I always think sometimes I get asked for advice. I'm at like a, a nice enough point where people sometimes ask me advice about writing, which is strange. And hopefully I, I don't ruin their lives with my terrible <laughs> advice, you know, to kind of bring it full circle. Um, but the the real advice that I, the only advice I really have is just like the quicker you can become completely vulnerable and like talk about the things that really hurt you. I feel like that's the only way to kind of fast track anything. Like you can't, you can't really fast track your like skills at writing or like h- how well you can put together a scene or something, but you can, you can be more honest more quickly. Right. And, and so um, I'm just trying to be, you know, I'm just trying to bear every part that I can without uh, offending people that I love, you know? Um, and I think that that has had a part to play in why my brother and I are kind of talking about starting to talk about it. Um, you know, and it just, I, I, I would, you know, I, I'd like to try to write in a way that hopefully encourages other people to kind of also bear those parts. Like that's one of the real 
satisfactions that I get from writing uh, when somebody will write me, you know, like they're sometimes I get people who write me like their life story, um, you know, in, a, in like a page or something, um, but you know, pertaining to adoption or, or race or something. And it's that's just like the most satisfying thing in the world that you have been able to kind of open somebody else up by opening yourself up. You know what? That that's a good thing to say, and like that that uh, that makes me feel reoriented in terms of like uh, why this is a worthwhile thing to do. Because sometimes that can get confusing for me. Like, why am I putting myself through this? But you know, when you're honest and you put yourself out there, um, it ventilates something uh, in people. You know, something important and. I think like maybe, I mean, I, I remember feeling this way. I think this is kind of an instinct that a lot of creative people have, regardless of, you know, what uh, avenue they take. But I remember growing up always having a sense, and especially, I was especially attuned to this in college, um, you know, where you just felt like, like high school and college where you're sort of adolescent and awkward. Like I was always very deeply attuned, like instinctively or intuitively to everything that wasn't being said. And to like all this emotional pain and confusion that people were feeling around me. And so I, I had an impulse and I think I do it on this show. I think it's just like kind of like part of my DNA or whatever, but I like to talk about that stuff for that very reason. Not only because I think it might alleviate, like maybe if I express my fear or angst or confusion, um, to the group in college or in high school, um, and I become like sort of the, the butt of the joke or the the clown, the, the rodeo clown. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it might all, it might, it might, yeah, it brings relief and then people feel more comfortable about expressing their own insecurities or whatever, because to have it not be expressed is way more nerve wracking to me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I think for some people it's like, let's just keep this quiet and let it pass. And for me, it's like, no, we need to talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I I feel that same way. I I've had enough of like the silence. It's just you know like I'm at a point in my life where I just am sick of it. I don't I don't want it to be to like to have any control over who I am. You know. Well, and also like, what's the point? Like, really, what's the point? I mean, I understand that the discretion has its role in uh you know in our lives. You know, you, there there are some moments where silence is called for, and it's uh you know it's appropriate, but. You know, speaking more broadly, like we're going to all die and who knows when. But so what's the, yeah, the motivating factor of life? Yeah. Like who, who cares? <laughs> like and when like and so what? So people find out that like, you know, this happened to you or you're worried about this or you went through this. Like so like, you know, a they probably went through something of equal or greater um, difficulty and, you know, we'll, we'll hardly hold it against you. And if they do. Uh, screw them, you know, and then B, uh, you know, we're all going to die. And so it's not going to matter ultimately. So just be honest while you're here, you know, as honest as you can be, I, I think, you know. Yeah. Way to get some hope out of the bleakness of life. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to ring it. I, you know, what is it? Like it, to me, it's like, be honest, uh, and then have like, like cling fight for a uh, sense of humor dark sense of humor, I think is appropriate relative to the difficulty of life and the circumstances that we as human beings find ourselves in. Like without that, I'm completely screwed. And you know, that might have something to do with just the way that I'm wired, but I don't see how you can function in this world with any kind of sanity, unless you have, um, 
a very strong grip on your sense of humor, both about like life and the world in general, but also uh, maybe most importantly about yourself, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways there's this sense of not wanting to be hurt or, or you, pr like pride and dignity that's kind of ruining everything, right? Like that's behind like wars and, and politics and, and differences of opinion everywhere that lead to like these huge blowouts and, and that change our like laws and countries for the worse. You know, like in a lot of that, I think is just like this. I, I Oh, I, I feel like there was a, there must've been, there's a quote about this that like, like, that there's like the shame and the fear of shame is like behind everything, you know, like everything bad. Um, and I just feel like, you know, like the world would be a better place if people weren't so afraid of, of, of like putting themselves out there and of like really getting vulnerable and like being the, the, the person that you are at your like most hurt and, and like essential being and, and not being afraid of like bearing that to the world. Right. If like, if people could do that, they wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't need to just go out and, you know, conquer countries and, and enslave people, et cetera, you know? Yeah. Like I was just like imagining as you were saying that, like, what if the president just like came on national television from the Oval Office and was just like, I'm really sad, you know, like, I'm just like, right. you know, or just like it bared. I mean, I know presidents do this to varying degrees and like it makes big news when like one tear is shed during like a campaign event. But, uh, you know, I think we're talking about something more explicit, you know, and, um, that would just be weird, you know, because I do feel like there's always all this posturing both at that level and then just at a more ordinary everyday, uh, interpersonal level, you know? And, um, I think there's that, you know, people's, I think just it's about honesty, you know, with wherever we are. And I think people tend to be dishonest out of some sense of shame, not because they necessarily want to like fool or, you know, put one over on people, but maybe they don't want to be hurt. Yeah. They don't want to be hurt. They want to protect themselves. So there's that. And then I think like there's, you know, another like gnawing kind of philosophical thing that's been bothering me for a long time, which I don't think I've sorted out. So when I talk about it now, I'm probably going to be deficient. But, you know, I, I can't get over this sense that there's a separation between people um, and uh, a lack of empathy. And it, let me put it to you this way. Like you think about poverty in the world and then you think about how much money is collected at the top among all these people, you know, that make up a very small percentage of the global population. That's astonishing. So no, but you know, you think about uh, the fact that you and I have had it compared to even uh, you know most of the world, uh, relatively great with shelter and stable families and food. Uh, even those basic essentials are not guaranteed to uh, you know a, a lot of people, most people probably, if you did the, the math. Um, and so I, I just, I guess this is why it's hard to talk about because I haven't sorted it out in my head yet. But it's the it's I think it comes down to ultimately. The, lack it's lack of empathy, but it's also like that, that age old philosophical argument between like individualism and collectivism. And it seems to me like the individual is defeating the, the collective instinct. And I think people, if they were to turn out, you know, and like this, this brings it back to like being honest and making yourself vulnerable. But if people were to uh, you know, look outward towards others and express themselves and reach out and just 
orient themselves with like, how can I help? How can I help other people? How can I stay more connected? As opposed to turning inward and being like, what's wrong with me? How do I feel? What do I want? What did I fail at? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, Sure. Yeah. I was listening to NPR recently and they had this segment about Mike Williams who invented some like uh, – camera that's used in like every dentist's office in America now. And he, you know, he sold his business for a million dollars and then he made McMillions on millions uh, and he got really rich. And then, um, you know, the market crashed, he had his house foreclosed, he was divorced and he ended up homeless and he was living on the streets. Um, and he had his like laptop stolen from him and he was beaten up by these other homeless people and he had to go to the ER uh, and wait there because he had no insurance. And finally, some doctor just plucked him out of there, um, you know, like talked to him about his ideas and his life. And, and he went in on a business with him, gave him housing, you know, like fed him. Um, and he and he was saying, you know, like before all of that, he was he was he thought of himself as humble. And, you know, like but he had money, you know, like and he had privilege. And he, you know, even though he thought of himself as a good person, he wasn't really he wasn't really thinking about. Uh, what it was like for other people, right? And and even if even he though he thinks of him, thought of himself as humble, he wasn't really humble. And now, you know, like the difference is so is so great, and and he just like gets it now. And and, and people aren't going to go through that process, right? And so, like most millionaires are not going to end up on the streets and then be saved by someone. It's just not going to happen. Um, and I don't know. I, I I do think there's definitely a lack of empathy going on here. You know, like. I, I just can't see how you can be really empathetic and believe some of the things that people believe, you know, like that, for example, like this Newtown thing, like that people think that was a, a hoax or something like a, right, that was put on by the government so that they could pass gun control laws. Like that's, that to me just is like, I, that's, I, that's amazing that people could think that first of all, and then just that they could think that and not, uh, think of the people who are actually victimized there and, you know, like be able to believe in something that really, believe something that didn't happen, believe something didn't happen that really like largely and hugely affected people, you know, like other people, people who aren't them. Um, people are, just, people are fucking nuts. And you know what? They're paranoid. Like, uh, you know, I'm all, I was never a huge, um, uh, anti-gun person. I'm not a gun. I don't have a gun. I don't want a gun. They, they make me uncomfortable. Um, but I, if people want to go hunting, like I'm not going to stand in the way, you know, if people want to have a pistol to like protect their home or whatever. Great. Keep it in a safe and do what you want to do. But yeah, although uh, yeah, I don't know. I like when you're in Korea has no guns, there are like no guns anywhere. Yeah. And it's definitely a difference when you're walking around, like even shitty parts of the city, you just feel a lot safer, you know, like, cause you know, no one's going to like, there's no chance that anybody's going to shoot you. Right. right. And it's harder for some, it's a lot harder for, like it let me tell you, it's a lot harder for somebody to stab you. You know, you can always run away from like a knife or something. Yeah. You can't run away from a gun, you'll just be shot. Well I'll tell you, like that's the thing. I live in Los Angeles and there's all sorts of crazy people in my neighborhood and every day I walk around and I think somewhere in the back of my mind I'm thinking, one of these days someone one of these nuts is gonna get a gun. And who knows? You know, it's a horrible thing to say and it's a horrible thing to think about, but like you know, that's like, that's what you're, I think you're alluding to. Like when, when there's that possibility, you know, it takes some of the fun out of walking around. <laughs> right. Sure. I thought people only drove in LA. <laughs> well, that's why we don't want to get shot. Right. Who wants to walk around? 
Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you went to Korea. So I, was, I wanted to ask you that. Like you did, you know, you have been there. You've checked it out. Like what was that experience like for you? I did. I met my wife there. Um, I moved there after Prague uh, to teach English. So wait, why, why, why were you in Prague? Let's make sure we get that figured out. So I graduated from college. I was, you know, just starting to kind of think about things. I started to kind of really dislike the, the political situation and, and a lot of the things that I had gone through in America. Um, like what? I, I, you know, like um, – so say for like in, when I was in that Asian American lit class, you know, like people were bringing in example, or the teacher was bringing in examples of – of racism in the media, or, and then we were reading like Don Lee's Yellow, which is a really great book of short stories, um, and kind of like a, a really important Asian American book. Um, and you know, people like the the white students in the class were like, "This kind of stuff doesn't happen. Like, this is just like exaggeration. Um, you know, like this doesn't happen to people like in normal life. You know, it's like the same post-racial bullshit that still is going around. You know, right now, um, that makes me extremely angry. Um, and then we would see these interview. Then we saw this interview too, where he, you know, Don Lee was saying like everything in that book that happens to people has happened to me. You know, and like everything in that book that happens to people, all the racist shit that happens to people in that book has happened to me too. You know, like it's not stuff that just is like things that are are like rare occurrences or something. It's it's like subtly persistent all the time, everywhere. Um, and, and much worse, especially when you're like down south or, or even like in certain areas of, of the north. Um, and and you know, I just wanted to kind of get away and see what it was like elsewhere in the world. And um, I also didn't have any career prospects. You know, like I had an English degree. I knew at that point that it didn't qualify me for anything. Uh, <laughs> you know, why don't and they I tell you? Why don't they just tell you that? Like, they they, should... yeah, they should definitely tell you. Your advisor should sit you down when you get in there and ask you whether you're going to be a lawyer. And if you say no, should point you in a different direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but so then I went to this little session that was like, what are you going to do after college if you have an English degree? And one of the options was teach English abroad. Um, and that seemed pretty good to me. And um, they had a connection with uh, this this English training, ESL training program in Prague. And so I went there. Uh, I taught English for a year. It was it was really eye-opening. Uh, people there were a lot different than are a lot. I mean, like I guess it goes without saying that they're a lot different from people here. There's still like a lot of weird stuff uh, that goes on there. Um, I, f- I found Prague, I found Prague sort of spooky, like when I was there. Like, I mean, like I loved it. It's a beautiful city. Like how uh, old it is and like the ghost stories and like just something about it. It's just the vibe. And I also I almost got mugged there. Maybe that's why like I, my memory is coloring it that way. But like oh, yeah, it's just something it's, it's like something gothic. Like that was just in that like main square or whatever and some guy was trying to sell me pot and I was like twenty one and I was like, Okay and he's like, Come you know, he was like trying to lead me down this alley and I just stopped, <laughs> I stopped following him, but it was clear that he was going to like pull a knife on me and ask me for my, you know, cash. Yeah, you might not have. You might have just sold you something worse. Yeah, so like <laughs> yeah, right. that's a pretty. pretty I missed. I missed out. On, I missed out on some good drugs, <laughs> or maybe some terrible drugs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, there is like this weird thing where so many of the legends there have to do with selling your soul to the devil. I mean, that's. I I, I got really into like the legends of Prague when I was there, and I you know like I spent a lot of time teaching English, uh, just kind of 
asking people about weird things in the history of Prague, like defenestrations and uh, you know ghost stories and. Um, Wait, what does what does defenestrations mean? Why it's am I... when somebody throws you out of a window. Oh, um, that's okay. Yeah. And it's happened at, at key points throughout the history of Prague. It's it's pretty. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon there. Um, but there's just like a lot of weird history that goes on there. And then, but the the city is like so beautiful that every time somebody comes through and conquers the Czech Republic, they leave Prague pretty much untouched. You know, like they just think it's so beautiful. Like when Hitler was there, he left Prague because he wanted to make it a museum to a deceased race. He was going to like make the Jewish town into a museum for all of the Jews that he killed. Um, you know, like because it was so beautiful, and like that's so people come through, and the like, conquerors come through. They, you know, kill everyone, and and they just like leave the city untouched because it's beautiful, um, and it just creates this really interesting mindset, like that that like this kind of fatalism, and and I mean, like when I was there, there was this voting for uh, the most important person in, in history in the Czech history, and they had it for, like, Britain and uh, for other countries. And the Czechs voted in somebody who never existed. They voted in, like, a character that somebody had made for a play who had, like, come close to all of these defining moments in history but had been, like, the second person there. Like, he had he had uh, invented the, the cockpit of an airplane, but he couldn't, you know, like, make it because nobody had invented an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the person they they voted in, you know. Like in Britain, had voted in like Winston Churchill or something, you know. Right. Um, and like that's just like the normal mindset of people there. It was really interesting, and they're like really attuned to the history and and um, the history of exploitation and, and invasion and uh, violence and stuff. Um, uh, but I, I'm getting off track. Okay, so and then I went to Korea from there because well, I I was thinking. Oh, I'll just, you know, go to Korea out of curiosity. You know, like this is how I was thinking about that. Like, you know, where else can I go? Korea has pretty good money. Uh, I guess I'll just go there. Uh, you know, like obviously I think now I had other intentions in mind, but at the time I was thinking on the surface, like very on the surface. Um, and so I went there and I taught English for a year. And when I got there, I... Um, you, so they fly you over, they give you housing, and they set you up at their school. Like that's what, you, what happens when you get a job teaching English in Korea, and they give you a pretty good salary, and there are almost no taxes. So it's like a pretty good life. Uh, there's a lot of disposable income. Um, so I arrive at the airport, and the manager of the school shows up, and she tells me that my housing uh, is is occupied by another teacher. So I, like right off the bat, I'm like I have no place to live, and then she says. Uh, we'll put you up, but we'll put you up in a hotel. You know, like it won't be that bad. We'll put you up in a hotel. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, a hotel possibly could be better. Like, what hotel? Maybe, uh, <laughs> right, um, right. So we like go through the city. We're going to like, it seems like we're going to worse and worse parts of the city. And we drive up to this building that's like this square cement block. Um, and and we go inside and we're walking up the stairs and there are these like business cards on the stairs. I'm like, that's, that's a little interesting. <laughs> you know, and then when I like start to look closer, it turns out they're like, they're business cards for prostitutes. You know, like there are naked women on the, on the cards and like a number that you can call. And this is how they're advertising themselves with these business cards. And we get in the room and it's like this 10 by 10 room with a, like a square or a circle, a circle bed in the middle that takes up the entire room. <laughs> and like, just this window that's been like boarded over with an air conditioner and a TV that plays only porn, you know, and I stay there for a month, you know, like a red lights on the ceiling. Like if you turned off all the lights, there's still like a red light that was shining. 
you know, and I stayed there for a month and I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. Did you ever call a hooker? (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't. I never called a hooker. Um, you know, I was, I was a a pure boy. (laughs) I I could never do it. I mean, like I, you know, I'm going back to my travels when I was like in my early twenties, like you're in like the red light district in Amsterdam. I could never do that. Like there's guys who can go abroad and like, it's. You know, I was too afraid of what would happen. You know, yeah, like, uh, what, keep... what happens if something you didn't want showed up, or like, yeah, like, who knows what you're going to get in that situation? Right, right, um, right, right. It could be, it could be disastrous. There's diseases, and uh, right. I don't know. I just, I, I never really. Like, I was afraid to eat food. <laughs> you know, like I was afraid to, because <laughs> like, I thought I would get like a, you know, like a stomach virus or something. You know, I didn't want. I, you hear like these traveler stories, and I was afraid to do anything, and so I like lost 20 pounds eating only frosted flakes. Like I was eating Frosted Flakes out of the box and then like downing milk afterwards to wash it, you know, like washing it together in my mouth. Um, and, and I would have left actually if I hadn't met my wife and I like it just stayed because yeah. of her and, and eventually, you know, we got engaged and, and I kept going back and forth and uh, after a few years we, we got married. I mean, like otherwise I would have never stuck it out. Okay. Who's that? Hmm? Uh, am I hearing a woman's voice or am I crazy? No, no, you're, there's nobody else here. I just heard a woman say something. Maybe I'm maybe I'm hearing things. But uh... you're buying into the ghost story, <laughs> right? So, how did you meet your wife? Like, did you meet her at this hotel? No, <laughs> uh, no, she was um, she was teaching English at the same school I was. Um, ah, okay. Yeah. You know, so you guys are she... both ESL teachers in Korea. Right. Right. Yeah, and she had spent seven years in Australia, and so she had this, like, really cute, uh, like, half-Australian, half-Korean accent, and I just, you know, that was it. felt her. Yep. That was it. Um, yep. Well, you know what? I mean, I could keep talking to you forever, um, but I know you got to get back to work, and uh, i got to get back to work. So uh, it's great talking with you. Congratulations, um, you know, on all your publications and especially on the new book, and I wish you uh, best of luck with it, best of luck with uh, fatherhood. You know. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, it was it was great to do the show. It's really wonderful to talk to you. All right, Matthew, take it easy, man. You too. All right, everyone, that's the program. That is Matthew Salisis. You can find him online at matthewsalisis.com. He's on the Facebook. He's on the Twitter at Salisis. Go get his new novel. It's called I'm Not Saying. I'm Just Saying, and it is published by Civil Coping Mechanisms. And hey, while you're at it, be sure to pick up How Literature Saved My Life, the new one by David Shields. He's on the Twitter at underscore David Shields. He also has a website, a website. I believe it's davidshields.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget to get the app, the official app of this program, the Other People app. It is available for free for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is the very best way to listen to this show, and it is also the very best way to access the full archives. The app itself is free. You can get it at the App Store or the Android Marketplace. Be sure to do that. And hey, if you like the show, please remember to rate it and review it at iTunes. Rate it and review it pretty please. That does help the cause, and it only takes two minutes. And uh, since I did mail uh, today, I forgot to mention, if you want to email me, tell me a story, let me know what you think, the uh, email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Please remember that Henry David Thoreau died of tuberculosis and that George Bernard Shaw died at 94 after complications that arose uh, after he broke his hip. That is it for now. I'll be back again soon on Wednesday, as a matter of fact, with another episode. Thanks for listening. 
And uh, this is another long one, more than two hours. It is another robust episode. Uh, it's a double feature, which means I probably shouldn't keep rambling. I should just end it. I should know uh, when to leave well enough alone. I should pull the plug. Brevity is the soul of wit. It is the soul of wit. Soul of wit. Soul. Wit. <laughs>